We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagra people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Should we get going? Yeah, did anything happen in the news? Well, we can talk about that, but before, we should introduce ourselves. Oh, he's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's learning. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, um, to, I don't know what number episode of Floodcast this is. Um, Less the 100th episode of more than Yeah, that's more right. Than, more Continue than at the 100th anniversary of Floodcast. <laughs> I don't think actually it is. Um, we haven't gone. We haven't got our 100th episode. More, than, more than 30, less than 50. I reckon, yeah, I'd be stunned if we'd cracked 50. Yeah, well, we get a challenge coin and we get extra Patreon subscribers if we get that. <laughs> um, so, in the room, we've got... Callum. Eleanor. You've got Declan. And uh, Max uh, speaking right now. Um, welcome, everyone. Declan, you asked a good question about what happened in the news this week. I was sad that we didn't have a floodcast last week because we didn't get to uh, immediately react to the sort of abysmal and mind-numbing um, Plibersec Craig Kelly confrontation, which held the like the media cycle for like two or three days. It was particularly abysmal. For those that don't know, about a week and a half ago, Tanya Plibersek, uh, uh, the you know, for, I'm sure most people know, the Labor left MP, uh, federal MP, confronted Craig Kelly, the like conservative Queensland MP, in this sort of confected outrage in the halls of Parliament. Uh, in front of a lot of media, uh, uh, about his uh, position on vaccines. Yeah, uh, and like it he's was just vaguely been like indicating, like just the normal kind of like far right, like oh, we don't know if they work, kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Or I suppose the reason I wanted to talk about it was because for me it just summed up uh, how uh, sort of like the worst aspects of liberal media coverage. Like here was like this apparent darling of Labour left who I can't, I don't actually think has ever said anything vaguely progressive in a long time. Um, making out like she was a progressive hero because she confronted Craig Kelly over this like pretty like it's you know like it's not exactly radical to say that you believe in the COVID vaccine um, or it's particularly amazing that you do like it's, you should get the COVID vaccine that's not exactly radical even Scott Morrison well, believes that like and she was pulling him up ground. on like the whole conspiracy thing because it was like he's being painted by Labour as like a conspiracist in the coalition government that Morrison isn't showing up and it was like. It was that was the narrative of like he can't rein in Craig Kelly. He's like letting him have free reign or whatever. It's really good for Labor to be like, oh shit, this kind of like he can't like like rein in the far right extremist in his ranks. It seems to be really landing for on as a criticism on Albo. What if we tried it on Scott Morrison? Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Well, exactly. But I think it was bizarre because Declan, I think you pointed this out uh, last week when we were talking about it. That her primary argument was, I agree with Scott Morrison and the coalition government. Do you, Craig? And it's like, yes, Tanya, you've owned him. <laughs> like, and like of all the things to attack the government about, like the way they're destroying people's lives or thinking about they're going to cut job seeker or that like they've overseen an economy that's you know, like resulted in the like enormous concentration in wealth and power that you know billionaires have increased their wealth by fifty percent while like the sort of like. Uh, you know, working class people in Australia are suffering more and more and, you know, unemployment skyrocketing. Why not have any sort of class rage about that while these fuckers are in Parliament earning four or $500,000 a year and dining with their, like, CEO mates? But instead, this is the way she... Com- this is the confrontation. This is the thing she gets angry and, about. And it was so 
obviously fucking set up for the oh, cameras. Was, like the photos of it. Did you any of you? S- I watched the first minute of it, and it was like looking at a, like a glitch in reality. It was just like this entirely performative kind of outrage. The photos of it were actually better than the video. But <laughs> it, well, like when I say better, I mean like more Even brain more cancer inducing. <laughs> because it was like there was one of where she was like there was like one where she's got her head in her hands and she's. Oh, I can't believe you're saying all this, Craig. And then there was another one she, she, where she's like looking at the camera, and he's like got a, his finger up in her face, but she's like turned sideways to the camera, like smiling really yeah. oddly. It was like, oh my god. Yeah, the, the one that was like immediately attempted to be memed. I mean, the thing I found like like most notable about like how incredibly stage managed the whole thing is, and weird that no one else is talking about how like. This thing is fake? Like, it's obviously fake. Like, obviously her stuff is and Kelly's stuff has got together and we're like, do you want to raise both of our profiles? Allegedly. Allegedly. Not, yeah, <laughs> I hope we know. It would be pretty wild, actually, if they were like... I don't... Yeah. It would be Look, amazing I, if like, her chief of staff was... Fucking Occam's razor this. It's way easier to believe that that's what happened because, like... I would when prefer... You- I wish I could believe that, but somehow it just seems like mutual and serendipitous incompetence on both parts. Yeah, and mutual... That just happened to raise their profiles. Exactly. And mutual and serendipitous, but... but- Mutual in a sense Exactly But mutual in terms of Mutual gain for both of them Like for Craig Kelly It's useful to be seen To arguing with a person of label, Like someone in like A darling of Labor left And for Tanya Plibersek It improves I don't know why It does this though But apparently improves Her progressive credentials Because she's talking about Craig Kelly Because she's willing to take on The you know The, the most nasty elements Of conservatism in Australia Which is obviously Like like people like Craig Kelly, who are just like f- like relatively fringe, like right wing kind of like politics, and not you know the big corporations that run our fucking country. Yeah, but also the, not even like not even the worst bits of like like sure. I would it's say like, it's not the worst bits yes. because the issue of vaccine, yeah. it's not like there's no grey area. It's one of those things where there's always going to be a section of society that just believes otherwise, and we're not like fighting at this stage where there's like a large middle ground or grey area where they're actually having to convince people that no vaccines would be good. Like it's just a safe arena for Labour to be like, no, we're good. We've like got the moral authority on this. Yeah, no, exactly. And like in terms of that, she thought like that apparently for like a lot of like liberal water drops on Twitter, etc. It was owning because Tanya Blue said, I agree with Scott Morrison on your government, do you? It's like, if you're uttering that sentence in public, then maybe like you're probably your strategy is a bit fun. But this is like the next future Labour Labour here. So like she's really you know, falling in line with Labour agreeing with Coalition. Because yeah. oh, that's the thing. I don't, do we honestly think Albo's going to make it to the next... We've talked Election? about this last week. I, I, think, and I, I think it's going to be Tanya. I think I put my money down. I think no, she's Tanya. aiming to be next, not like not next to lose, but next to have a couple of years and then lose. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, speak. Um, yeah, moving why, on. Why I think it, why I think it was like a deliberate setup is like if you listen if you listen to the like the video clip, you can hear the amount of shutters on cameras going through the oh, whole it's thing, nuts. and there is no way that like a serendipity like a serendipitous kind of meeting where she like sees Craig like in the hallway and is like fuck I'm actually just going to confront I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to confront him about his views which I think is a dangerous I don't think that just happens in parliament oh, I agree. without like like at the same time that there just happens to be so many cameras that you like but it's like constant it's like it's like applause really I agree Deckers <laughs> it was coordinated and I do think that her her 
I, I would imagine that her media team briefed the media beforehand and they thought of it as a media strategy and just found out where Craig Colley was giving a press conference. Where I, where I, where I, <laughs> less certain. Collusion. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Collusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Craig, like Tanya calls Craig and is like, Craig, Craig, Craig. No, I don't think Tanya or Craig would make these decisions. <laughs> um, but moving on from that intellectually insulting episode, um, which really, like, I. I felt like I was being gaslit by everyone on Twitter being like, yes, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? What is, who cares? And like, exactly, Declan's, it's clearly staged. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's like, they're like, it's, be- like, it's a bunch of people being like, look behind you. Yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> well, well, and also I said moving on, but it really <laughs> made me angry that it was like, it was like one of those moments where I felt like that, that photo of Tanya like smiling away, that one you described, Callum, while like crazy. I actually, what I felt like that photo was was like, it was like laughing, being like, huh, the like this, I have so much contempt for the ordinary public that they are going to buy this. Like, you know, they might be struggling to pay for housing costs and energy costs. Their suburbs might be like at 50 degrees and they can't pay for the air conditioning bill. And like, they want to send their, like, they want to go to see a dentist, but they can't afford to. And their lives are like spent from pay pe- paycheck to paycheck working like, 50 hours a week um, But apparently Like this confrontation Is somehow going to Encourage them to get involved Or interested in politics And it's like It's not going to fucking do any of that Except for Guardian journalists And The other thing that happened this week Was uh, The Queensland Labor Party um, Reacted um, Very In a measured way uh, To uh, To furor around Quote unquote Youth justice um, The youth are at it again The youth are at it again and like, just quickly to sum this up, I just wanted to cover this quickly because it's so regressive, like so. Um, well, should we go, should we go through like like the the turn of events that have allowed them yeah, to, to yeah, do this? Yeah. So, like, was it a couple of weeks ago? A a young woman um, and her partner uh, were like were killed by a like a, a youth felon who was out on bail um, in a car crash. Um, and, like, obviously huge tragedy for the family. I think they're actually from the community I'm from in Mullaney. Um, but it's a really, like, serious tragedy for these people who've lost, like, their whole, their whole like, next generation in, like, one, one fell swoop. And there's, like, a very natural sympathy towards people in that, that sort of situation. But the Korea Mail instantly started talking about, like, well, you know, why won't Palaszczuk do anything about youth crime? Um, and Labor was all too willing to jump up. And like and and put through like a raft of awful changes within, within the space of about a few weeks. But they were already talking about this um, pre-election last the, year. They've wanted to do it for ages because there's two seats in all of Queensland where youth crime is a huge issue, which is also unsurprisingly unemployment's a big issue up there too, um, and poverty and social yeah, housing. The, just to quickly go through the four main changes because they are spectacularly regressive. So putting electronic bracelets on as a condition of bail. Um, for quote-unquote high-risk offenders, um, so for like 16- and 17-year-old kids, uh, reversing the presumption of bail for uh, a whole bunch of youth offenders, which we can talk about it, but like one of the major problems in Queensland at the moment is that there's like jails were overrun with kids on remand. Um, and, you know, you can be apparently a criminal at, by the, uh, down to the age of 10 in Queensland. Uh, so like a whole bunch of people just being denied bail and without getting a trial and then being in prison for a whole fucking period of time. Forcing, you know, parents and guardians to confirm that bail conditions will be met, even though they haven't been given any fucking resources to help. If you want to train a, cr- if you want to train someone to be a criminal, why don't you just imprison them for like 
like four of their, their like formative, formative eight years. like eight teenage yeah. years. Like that's gonna work. We're talking about recidivism. Like, yeah, what do you think is gonna happen if your solution to high levels of poverty and disadvantage is to is to punish people for it, um, and then uh, strengthen existing bail laws, um. And apparently, um, including a reference to the community being protected from recidivist youth offenders. And what was um, bizarre about this, like, because I was talking about someone, uh, uh, Abe, about this, and I was like, because he had predicted that Queensland was going to go further to the right on youth justice. And I was like, oh, maybe, but like, fuck. I, for some reason, thought that that Queensland Labor might not do that because of the reaction to the curfew stuff. Um uh, you know, the LNP proposed a curfew for kids in north Qu- sections of North Queensland and even the Labor Party found it within themselves to oppose that. But they've just like, um, they, they've jumped so far to the right on this, it's actually astounding. And what was infuriating listening to it was that um, if you're going, like there's going to be more instances of youth crime if you keep putting people in prison. Like, and, you know, funding culturally appropriate, and like the elephant in the room is most of these kids are First Nations kids. Uh, and their lives, not only via colonialism and poverty and a disadvantage and racism, their lives have already been fucked, but, like, the cherry on the cake, miserable cherry on the cake, is we're going to... A natural human reaction to all of this disadvantage anyone would take is, uh, like, acting out, I suppose, uh, and the cherry on the cake is then punishing for that. And not only that, that's this is, in a, that, like, this increased incarceration of what's going to be, um, you know, proportionally First Nations people in a state... That has not great record on deaths in custody. Oh, fucking shocking! Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's just a whole fuck, fucking disastrous fucking thing. Yeah, well, the social housing waiting list is over fifty thousand people now in Queensland. Um, I just thought it was like um, this sort of like Queensland Labor Party always tries to claim some moral license over the LNP and in the lead up to the Queensland election. Do you reckon when- they're pushing the media campaign, the Labor Party? Because I saw it in I saw an article. Um, in the ABC about the one that just happened where there was the, I, I there, was, there was the vigilante. Well. Um, it was in the ABC. Honestly, I thought it was from the fucking Korea Mail, this article, because it was about this um, woman who'd been killed by this vigilante um, driver and these people had broken... These kids had broken into a house unknowingly that was hers. So it was like sort well, of really... So like the, and, so yeah, it was fucked. So I read this story recently and I was like stunned to see that the ABC is like also being like, oh, absolutely, we should we should jail more kids and the way they're jumping, like jumping to to help. So the, like the headline was like 17 year old, like, you know, doesn't pass bail or passes bail, whatever it was for like crash that killed like, you know, young motorcyclists and a picture of this like beautiful young woman sitting on the beach, like huge tragedy. This young woman's died, but to read the headline and to read the first like couple of paragraphs of this article, you'd be like, Oh yeah. So this like, this like child has like stolen a car, gone for a joyride and, and it's, it's ended in like a terrible tragedy. That's not what happened. She was a passenger. The car was stolen, but the the crash that killed this young woman was the vigilante chasing them. So he hit, like he hit this bloody motorcyclist. He killed this young woman. I did see so, that. Like what? What the fuck? That's an insane way to phrase. Like that's an insane way to frame this thing. Whereas it's like, well, it, wow, it doesn't seem like the problem is youth crime. This problem sounds like vigilantism. Like that's pretty bad. Yeah, like, and that's. I actually, wonder why kids are acting out. There's but, a whole like. That's so true. Like back in um, maybe a couple of years ago, like oh, like even back in um, Kalgoorlie, the big thing is white vigilantism. Like 
where they were literally going down and running over um, young indigenous kids. That's right. Like, that's where that whole... Yeah, that uh, boy uh, Elijah, died. I think. Eli- yeah, maybe. it was Elijah. Eli- and it was just like, that's the bigger issue here, not fucking youth crime. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's fucking white guys with cars killing kids. Like, it's, uh, it's the same thing as Travis Hickey as well. Like, yeah, and it, I, I think, like, what it summed up for me was um, this the sort of lie that underlies the Queensland Labor Party in particular, I find at the moment, although all, like sort of, quote-unquote, progressive governments, um, that their solution to poverty and disadvantage is criminalising it. And um, all of this stuff about they care about working people or their party for the workers, uh, like, when push comes to shove, basically is just, like, their solution is incarceration. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, Well, and they're even, like, well, they even frame it in terms of, like, Getting new, good new jobs in the regions. Like, so much of, like, the last election campaign in Queensland was Labor being like, oh, we're going to build a new prison here, a new prison there. We're going to also get really on board with, like, producing weapons. And it's like, oh, well, our, our way to provide jobs for the good working class, the good working class, is to criminalise the bad working class. And <laughs> Well, that's right. And um, the especially at a time, like... What's bizarre is like any a whole range of experts came out against this. Is like it's not going to stop recidivism. It's just going to result in more crime. Yeah, people being like, "Oh, I don't know. Have you read any social work literature since like 1955?" Well, like, that's what's really weird is that like you'd think that any fucking number of bureaucrats would be like, "Well, this is not actually going to do its job." And this is where like in this age of politics, where that doesn't matter. Like it does. It doesn't actually fucking matter. They probably know that it's not going to stop youth crime. Uh, of course. Like, like, and they would know that if they just built enough public housing or they, like, made school lunches free or they funded social services or, like, they gave every kid free schools, like, free club sport, um, then, like, that would do a lot more. But I don't think they care because that, like, their their goal is just sort of to manage society's sort of disintegration and, like, ensure that the right people make a lot of money because the other solution would involve raising taxes on the rich or, like, you know, upending the power structures in Queensland or Australia. And they're much more concerned with that than they are actually with protecting or improving people's lives. And if people act out like naughty society, like does bad things, then we just slap them on the wrist and put them in prison. And that just happens, Declan, as you're right, to like ensure that they can build a few more prisons and like make a little more extra money that way. Yeah, totally speaks to like what their perception of like doing politics and being successful in politics is in that they just want to like maintain this sense that they are like working at a problem and doing well and not in a meaningful way that's actually going to like change any of the underlying conditions which are like creating the not even the potential but the reality of like these people acting out in these circumstances because, you know, if you're up against you know, this white vigilantism thing where you've got brown kids getting killed, which obviously mainstream society is never going to be as concerned about because it's not affecting them in any way, shape or form. But the like abstract risk of like some brown kid maybe like stealing their car or doing something that when the reality is like in terms of just the numbers of it, like the likelihood of coming up against that experience is very, very, very low. But it's more effective for the Labour Party to be perceived as doing this work that's going to, like, assuage this fear on an abstract mainstream level. And also, yeah, and it's like, like, the other big thing that actually I saw, you know, news-wise is, like, down in the Grampians, there was that fucking neo-Nazi group, like, literally out there doing um, Hail Hitlers. Like, there is a growing right-wing um, white nationalist group, which, you know, is maybe slightly, well, integrated as well into the white vigilante thing, but it's like, that's like, there's a big fucking other issue going on here in terms of right-wing extremism, which 
is completely ignored by almost everyone. Um, yeah, and, and Eleanor, that exactly right in terms of comparisons of violence as well, because the, when um, apparently that 15-year-old was denied bail by a magistrate, he got understandably very upset um, and like broke down and got very angry. And apparently the magistrate said something, like from what I understand, something along the lines of like, oh, I don't want to have to put up with this violence. And it's like, whoa, like, you, you, <laughs> like exactly right. Like what about all the poverty and disadvantage and being abused, like beaten the shit out of in prison or told, like threatened by cops, like, or being brought up in a life where you basically have given absolutely no fucking chance and you're just forced into poverty uh, and, and, the, and subject to racism. That's the, like, it's like, it's like, it's literally like this, um, the state, coming along and like beating the shit out like punching you being like stop hitting yourself stop hitting yourself stop doing violence it's it's insane yeah i think my my partner said that i, th- I think it's in queensland but the the average life expectancy of indigenous men in queensland is 37 like <laughs> it may not be true it may have been like for a specific geographic area or something but it was it was it was true the of like one, that's true anywhere it was true still it was true of like one particular horrendous. like one particular cut of like of of a section of of society and it's just that's bad like that's also violence right <laughs> yeah yeah it's 68 in queensland um looking it up um so that's the news um particularly <clears throat> bleak uh obviously we're um obviously also the coalition's deciding whether or not to plunge everyone back into poverty but not extending the I feel um, like that's going to be great for crime <laughs> yeah yeah job seeker which is fucking awful um it would be nice if Plibersek had yelled at Craig Kelly about that. Um, uh, but, well, but they can't because Labor still hasn't said if they've got, like, what they would raise it to. No. Like, no, they, just, like they still haven't actually said that they'll do anything Just different. keep it doubled. They, well, it's not doubled now. It's like now, a Schrodinger's but, situation where they don't have to say how much it would be and if they just don't comment on it, they can let everyone keep on believing that they would want to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, 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 we want to increase it. Just, we need to spend like at least two years with a lot of bureaucrats to find out exactly how. It's like, just double it. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. Just like find out what the poverty level is and make that the minimum. It's And even like, so I worked um, in a Centrelink call centre for just over 12 months last year. And, well, I say Centrelink Call Centre, but they've privatised all of their frontline um, phone services. I was working for a labour hire company, but that's a whole other story. Um, but basically, yeah, I was I was went on phones as JobKeeper and the rate got doubled during COVID. Mm. So I that was my sort of experience was that started there. And even then, people were, like, struggling just to get by on double new start or like job keeper and like, you know, still having to deal with people like I can't like survive and that sort of thing. And then I was around when they cut it the first couple of times and it was fucked because like people were just calling up being like, I like, I don't have like this money anymore. I can't even, can you get me something? Can you give me money um, or anything? I was like, I, just, I can't, I'll try what I see what I can do like social workers. And it was fucked because just watching people go through that, experience of having oh actually you know what i can like not really survive but i can sort of do a little bit better and then it was just like slowly decreasing it was just it was heartbreaking it'd be nice to see some yelling about that um but the positive aspect of our uh floodcast today uh after all of that um really yeah yeah that's right wonderful news um is uh wanted to talk about jane mcalevy uh, who is a ex well current and ex union organizer? Wrote two books, Raising Hell, 
and Raising Expectations, which is a sort of a memoir of her efforts of organizing in trade unions in particular. Las Vegas? Las, Las Vegas, Nevada, and for the Service Employees International uh, Union, um, which or the SEIU, uh, which is, I think, America's biggest trade union. Um, it's huge. It's like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's this enormous organization organizing health workers in private and public hospitals. And also she's written a book called No Shortcuts, which is sort of her PhD and theory of organizing. Um, Declan slash Eleanor, uh, why why do you want to talk to talk about Jane? Oh, I think firstly she's the only decent organizer um, who's like publishing books. Um, one of the things I heard her say, which I really really loved, was like like heaps of great organizers doing heaps of really great work, but you don't get to like they're too busy winning to like write down what they're doing. And so I think she, she's made like a pretty explicit kind of like commitment to trying to systematize and describe what she's doing so that people can learn from it. And her focus on, on particularly on structure tests and power, um, power and strategy are, are really, really important for all organizations. And I thought it would be good to relate what we're doing in an electoral project to this particular thing, because there's similarities and there's differences. Um, I don't like we're obviously not organizing for a strike, so we don't have the same goals and intentions. But it's it there's a lot that's applicable as well. Yeah, you felt like the concepts related and the concepts relate. The concepts relate. Um, and and secondly, just particularly what she was talking about with the SEIU and 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 Nevada is it really relates strongly to what's happening in in Australian unionism as well, where there's this complete like lack of commitment to to real organizing and to organizing for the possibility of going on strike or, or things of this nature. Um, and I guess the professionalization of unionism and the huge gap between the union bureaucracy and unionism on the ground, which, which creates a, like a, but being able to demonstrate that you can still organize strikes in that context is very important for Australians to realize, I think. Mm. Yeah. I found that in particular, like really interesting in the parallels um, that we face here in terms of engaging in an electoral project in the vacuum of electoralism and the like complete and utter like circus and degradation that is like politics and people's thought of what meaningful politics and political work is um, in yeah how often the like underlying assumptions made and and yeah assumptions made by the union bureauc- bureaucracy go like totally against and actually undermine the work that is actually happening on the ground in terms of meaningful work or organizing um and similarly here like sometimes within you know the our own party within society at large um yeah people's perception of the fact that like oh people's minds can't be meaningfully changed and actually like you can't act you know you can't actually um like that nothing meaningful is going to ship shift and everything is just like kind of totally fake and you have to trick people into believing a certain politics into voting a certain way uh, and it's just not the case and when you're in that sphere with those assumptions trying to do that work it's kind of mind-boggling um infuriating but also sort of um at least me as a young person you know growing up I was thinking like there's a lot of political activity there's a lot of energy happening and it's not resulting into anything Mm. and then yeah learning more about like these undercurrents and the ways in which these institutions are undermining themselves and actually stopping them from achieving meaningful change was just like yeah intense (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very exciting to read just taking a sort of a brief step back like the first book Raising Hell and Raising Expectations 
sort of tells the story of her arrival into the trade union movement. Uh, and she originally works as an organiser for their sort of trade union federation and goes into the city. What city is it? The is it Connecticut? N- not Connecticut. Um, is this like... The first, her first big organising campaign. It's, it's in Las Vegas. No, it's no, brought... No, it's no, brought no. I'm pretty sure it's... Let me check the chapter titles. Regardless, she's... Start, it's not Las yeah, Vegas. Connecticut. Connecticut. It was the housing thing. Yeah, the housing thing. That's exactly right, Eleanor. Um... <laughs> um in Connecticut, and she starts off in the AFL-CIO, uh, which is like their trade union federation, sort of like the ACTU in Australia, um, and uh, she's very successful. Uh, wins all of these fights, but ultimately, uh, and you'll, this story is sort of recurring throughout the memoir, as a sort of Eleanor alluded to, runs into a very um, uh, dogmatic uh, and... Uh, antagonistic, even, and, I would say. Like, yeah, antag- like, I think the like she keeps coming... In- up against the union establishment, which is antagonistic to workers winning. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, and her, her, and her forms of organising, uh, and it's sort of pushed out and ends up uh, at Nevada uh, with the SEIU and after a few other organising efforts. And the bulk of the story is about her enormous success in organising, um, in particular nurses, but ancillary staff as well in private and public hospitals, and essentially documents these remarkable wins. Um, and along the way, sort of, teases out these concepts um, that I think we all agree would be very useful in talking about. We, I think Declan and Eleanor alluded to structure tests, um, which you know we can talk a little bit about, as well as whole worker organising and power mapping. But yeah, I, I, I think um, certainly reading this, what was amazing to me was, one, the degree to which she talked about the minutia of successful union organising and what how what power is and how it's manifested and what actually social movements are. Like, this is the first time I've read a book where, because the left talks about social movements a lot, where actually I understood something as a social movement, where people were acting in their own and organising in their own collective self-interest. Yeah, and advertise, like and, and organising socially and being like, oh, yeah, like... I guess I probably should have put those together a little bit quicker, but like I see what it is. It's people talking to people in their communities about like the issues that they're facing at work or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And what was, um, what was spectacular as well was uh, this is the first time I've read anything about any sort of like in particular worker organizing also for just from the left that, Describe what worker organizing was. It was just done like in such a common sense kind of way. Like you're reading it and you're going like, yeah, fuck, of course. Like why can't more people be talking about it in this way? Like it just seems so simple. Yeah, that's right. And running in, as you both, Declan and Eleanor, you both alluded to running against the common senses of the trade union movement, which is A, strikes don't work anymore and you shouldn't do them. B, that the trade union bureaucracy should just be in control and running everything. Uh, and see that workers really shouldn't have any sort of like primary role in that organising. And D, which relates to whole worker organising, stuff like concerns around housing or poverty or like services that exist outside the workplace aren't the concerns of trade unions, uh, which she thinks is complete bullshit. Yeah, um, it is absolute bullshit. I mean, I think the other thing that really, really struck me was like the, the immediate, like just being like, oh, we need to have everybody on board. Like like if we, if we can't get to 95% membership, then we're wasting our time and we can't do anything. And just like how completely alien that was to my experience of working in, a, in an Australian union where it was like, look, getting one member here and one member there was the goal. Like like the, the, the whole way we understood organising was to find like a few members in each workplace who would like opt in to various levels of like engagement. 
And that was that was the best we could hope for, as opposed to this like, oh no no, we've got a, a structure of workers in like in an institution which is a structure of itself, and what we need to do is to get every single person in that board in to the same degree, or else we're not going to be able to win shit. Yeah, I've so yeah, I with Declan that following on from that. So Declan and I both have an experience with the Together Union. And my experience was like last year when I was working in that Centrelink labor hire company, I was like, I'm interested in learning about um, union organizing. And so I wanted to join, I joined the union. I was like, got in touch with my organizer who was really great, really great guy. Um, and we're like, all right, let's put together a plan of like getting people on board. Um, and we started getting a few, you know, I recruited a couple of people and we were starting to go through the process. It was very fucking slow though, because um one COVID was happening but two there was just not a lot of support from the union and it wasn't at all um the organizers fault but it's purely because like they do not have the resources put towards organizing there's like what one organizer for a few thousand workers yeah and, and i think like they have mil they for, for context they put a million dollars towards the queensland um state election last year and out of that they of all the things they did, they do a few different things, but they only knocked on 10,000 doors, which is the equivalent of the South Brisbane campaign with the resources they had. So in one tiny electorate. And that was just like, imagine if you put that money towards organizing um, workplaces or like actually just fucking organize, hiring organizers so that the ratio of worker to organizer I mean, I goes think what, down. What together's failing on this is is and what jane talks about a lot is is strategy and like prioritizing where like she's she's often talking about like you know strategic sectors in the economy where organizing is powerful and being like look that doesn't mean workers in other sectors are worth less but we've got a limited amount of resources that's always how it's going to be and what we need to do is to concentrate our resources in a place where where people where we can win big um, where we can induce a crisis in capitalism and like a crisis in in profit for the boss and win big. Um, and I don't think, I think whatever, what all Australians unions do is they've got really broad kind of sets of callings or people who can be their members. And they try to have like one organizer who's responsible for like 10 areas all under that thing. And like, so they try. Cause together is an amalgamation of different um, uh, unions from the past, right? Like there were a whole bunch of mergers that yeah, together so it's, is it's, now made up of rather than like you said, sort of like more specific yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like, even even like even unions that aren't together. So like, even like like the meat workers union or something like that. Like their organisers would be responsible for like ten meat packing plants as opposed to picking one and winning there. And this is a tension she runs in through throughout the book, sort of like with Andy Stern, the head of the SEIU, um, who's sort of uh, a betonoir. Um, that that their strategy is sort of to give up on that sort of militant form of union organising or deep organising, uh, which involves like. Um, uh, you know, devoting organizer time to existing union members and existing organizations as well as growing membership and not treating them as separate things. Whereas that sort of like the logic of trade union, this sort of trade union leadership appears to be, well, we've, that's the, you know, the, um, the horse has bolted on that. We've um, lost our ability to win things via social and union struggle. The goal is just to really grow membership and just to overcome the sort of decline in trade union density. Um, but, but not even density because it's not density that they're focused on. They're, they're looking at absolute numbers. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. like, they're saying, like, well, we can have, like, 
5% density, but if we have 5% density in like 100,000 workplaces, that's actually more union members than we'd have if we had 100% density in four workplaces and those workplaces one big. And I think what this like what this means at the level of the working class in Australia or in America is that we don't have near as many of those stories of a friend of a friend who was in a, who like got involved in a union, everyone got involved in the union and then they won something that changed their lives. Like, don't think that that's a story that happens very much in Australia, even if... Or even in the US, by the sounds of it, really. Yeah. I mean, like, or or anywhere around the Western world. And what I found really weird was, um, like, what, very interesting, because it seems to be reflected in other organisations, is she won a lot. Like, it seems like most of the projects she even got involved in, she won. Um, and that's, there wasn't anything that she didn't do successfully. Yeah, at yeah, some it was. Point. Yeah, I know. I, definitely reading it, I was like, yeah, "How reliable is this narrator?" You yeah, know, yeah. like it sounds like it's like I'm a genius and no one appreciates me. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But what was very interesting is like taking that at her word is like. I think the other thing you heard it talk about this like trade union aristocracy, and I think it's actually worse in Australia. It is absolutely Wh- worse whereas, in Australia. Um, whereas this trade union leadership aren't reliant on improving workers' lives, and often they are actually quite hostile to workers being involved in any of these organisations. They just want to reproduce these organisations that gives them political power and influence. And it's not even necessary political power and influence. They just don't want to be in the room. Um, and these sclerotic, hollowed-out organisations, essentially they spend a lot of their time seem to be fending off workers gaining any influence over these organisations. And as, you know, like absolutely worse in Australia because it's as compared to the US, trade unions in Australia are far more connected to the Labor Party than the trade unions are connected to the Democrats in the US. And you sort of see that um, play out over the course of the book when like the trade unions at least agree to primering or running against trying to challenge conservative Democrats. Whereas the trade union movement actively backs the Labor Party regardless. Yeah, well, it's a difference of the like the very different like party form, like in US versus Australian yeah, absolutely. politics. But yeah, it, one of the I think both you, Max, and Declan were kind of touching on this um, just around like you know she kept winning but was continually kind of up against this barrier of oh that that was this thing that you did in this niche bubble over there and actually has no that's not a, a legitimate reference point with which to confront this underlying assumption that like real worker power and winning is not possible where they're just kind of um you know accepting or even like perpetuating this this reality that um you know capitalism is at a certain point and we're at a certain point in its society where we can't be you know, that we can't actually be looking for real wins. We just have to put up constantly with compromise. And it reminded me of an experience of going down to the National Council Conference, the Greens down in Victoria, and we're sitting there like very excitedly and energetically talking about all these things we've been doing in Queensland and how like like quickly um, this little... And, you know, we're, we're still very, very, very tiny. We're but baby. You, we're, we baby. But when you compare where things were at five years ago and where things are at now in terms of this, like, maybe militant isn't quite the right word, but with, like meaningful conviction and meaningful politics around we can go out there and speak to people's materials needs and actually win in society and and have these big swings get these new representatives in and you know yes it's it's just a small band-aid in 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 the overall shit show that is um society and politics and capitalism and all the rest of it right now 
but and, and going down to Victoria and kind of, you know, really excitingly saying like, it's, it's pretty simple guys. Like it's not about spending tens of thousand dollars of focus groups and trying to figure out, you know, how, what, what's the right way we what's can. What's the one weird trick. The one like- weird trick to, yeah, get your like climate denying uncle to vote greens. You know, how do we appeal to these people? And it's like, oh, actually we just have to go out there and like talk to them and, and listen to them and just up against that barrier all the time of you're right. But that's Queensland. That that worked in Queensland. Queensland's different to yeah, everywhere yeah. else. And just there's always an, a sort of an exceptionalism that that is utilized by those organizational leaders to avoid having to adopt any of the political conclusions. Exactly. And they're not actually accepting like they they're taking the wins for what it's worth and they're going, "Yes, we're good. We've done this." But actually, they're missing like they're doing it's it's criminal in that they're not then taking that further and actually applying it elsewhere. Um, mm. Actually, with that that story in Connecticut with the the whole worker organising and with um, Jane McAlevey, McAlevey. whatever it is, um, where you know she describes there were I think three different cities, three different projects happening, and they were basically told create a new form of organizing we need to see what works we need to see if we can develop new tools of the three projects two produced no outcomes like literally not a single and they used far far more money like from like the scientist in me where you're looking at a project you're looking at like results on a paper the fact that they had this incredibly successful result and it wasn't then adopted as like union policy or in terms of a form of organizing is just like what what are you getting up and drinking in the morning like i mean i think that's something that i really like about what like what jane's analysis where she's like she's really focusing on what's reproducible in organizing um and so that's why i was kind of interested in being like like well what are these things are we reproducing um and like particularly around like this idea of what you do is like you you go and like redo the same activity again and again and again and see like who's coming and like if you're if you're growing or if you're not and that really strikes me as what we like what we do through a whole electoral campaign where we like we do the same thing again and again and again we organize of some people to come out and door knock and what we want is for people to go and have a conversation with people they don't know and find out what their mutual interests are um and we can see like over, over a campaign, oh, like every, like we're doing well when more people are coming and we're having more and more conversations or we're not doing well, more people aren't coming. We're not having more conversations. And it's this very similar kind of thing. Like we're, we're doing the same activity. What's holding us back from doing this better? What's holding us back from having more conversations? Mm, I think the other really interesting thing, and because it's not, I think one of the really interesting things about the stuff that we do and the sort of comparisons to Jane is it's not just conversations and like it's not often it's not that simple and I think one of the big differences and one that she really impresses upon is this the politics and the political education that underlies that organizing and what was really interesting was her section or shortcuts on the um, Chicago Teachers Union which was their organizers were for the first time and this is a very heterodox for um union organizers were going in there and talking about billionaires and the bosses and you know this sort of political rhetoric that described why the tw- um, teachers union and teachers in chicago actually held and occupied this really strategic um space in the economy and their role in politics was actually bigger and broader 
And that's, you know, often actually the big thing that we end up doing a lot of, which is that form of political education, training people and being able to explain why people have the experiences that they do. Why is it that uh, you feel like you have no power in politics? Why is it that um, we keep the left keeps and progressive movements keep losing? Why is it your wage is really low? And why is it that like billionaires seem to be making an enormous amount of money while you're really struggling? Uh, and that um, that sort of effort to describe a big picture politics, but be able to communicate it and connect it to ordinary people's lives. It was insane to me to read that like that wasn't often a tactic used by trade union organisers either. But also the fact that they then went on to trust predominantly the workers to reproduce those yeah, conversations yeah. and extend them further. It's the same thing here where you fall into the trap of, you know, needing the most articulate, symbolic, visionary kind of candidate when in actual fact the real work of politics is how many people can you get to support that candidate and how well can they as normal people talk about what that candidate is standing for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of brings us to the her big like one of a bigger concept that and used in Connecticut and, and pioneered in Connecticut that concept of whole worker organizing where that you know uh, halfway through that sort of Connecticut campaign she had uh, they just won a really fantastic contract and the big next big thing was that a bunch of workers were about to be evicted because all this public housing was going to be knocked down and the trade union leadership said well no we don't get involved in that because that's, that's not, not our realm. That's not union business, um, and uh, which is sort of weird, like whether or not workers get to live in a home. And her point <laughs> also like, well, can't the workers do whatever they want with their own organisation? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. apparently not. Uh, and that actually a whole worker organising is taking all of the workers' problems, whether they be in the workplace or at home, and treating them as union business. Um, well, I was just going to say I was listening to uh, Working Class History the other day on the Green Bands. And that was a really interesting because it clicked with me on like, oh, that is seems very similar to Jane McLevy's whole work at organising because it was a and it was the New South Wales um, branch that this was particularly about, and it was like this whole work at organising where they these you know very working class union members were actually going out and advocating for better lives not just for themselves but their communities, and they were winning, and but again you know moral theme of the same with McLevery, it's the national union that comes in and stops it. But it just very good, I think, parallels even in Australian history to good whole worker organising that have been successful in the past. Mm. Kind of speaks to me as well, like to the 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 traps of um, not just identity politics, but all, like a lot of environmental movements in general where they think that they, they're only... Um, you know, sphere of operating is within that one issue, ignoring the fact that all these other not not periphery issues, actually very pressing issues, housing, um, income, healthcare, education, you know, even development and public transport and things are actually getting in the way of people being able to engage more on this other issue. But they think, oh, we're an, we're an environmental party, we're an environmental organisation, this is what we have to be talking about all the time. And it's just not the case at all. But they've mm. all read, um, you know, they've all read Rules for Radicals, which is Saul Alinsky's book, which is, you know, he was the one of the big ones who pushed, um, you know, whatever, he was the AFL-CIO or what, one of those unions, he was the one who pushed them away from the better style of organising towards mobilisation. And that was built upon an anti-communist movement. Like and it, at, at its core, it was um, an anti-communist push because, oh, all the good organisers, they're all these leftists and like we like what they do, but we don't like their, 
their ideology. And so Solinsky, you know, was very instrumental in in moving them away from that organizing to mobilization. He wrote Rules for Radicals and me, who came to leftism through environmentalism when i read no shortcuts i was like oh shit i know this book because all the ngos are big fans you want to tease out that distinction as well that um callum because i think that's actually quite important that distinction between mobilizing and organizing yeah absolutely so mclevy and no shortcuts which is a bit more of an academic text but text but still really accessible she breaks down three different types of um i'm gonna say ways of doing things but basically you've got advocacy you've got mobilizing and you've got organizing um advocacy is very much like um you know lawyers um done at a policy level an example might be like edo or the environmental defenders office that sort of sort of advocacy sort of stuff um then you've got mobilizing which is like um uh turning out groups of people for um certain events to try to get like momentum on electoralism or that or some sort of particular thing. issue that they exactly on. so it's, and it's more, the same group of people being turned out again yeah and, again and, and again. she talks about in um no shortcuts like self-identifying um activists so people who like self-identify as an activist i guess a good example of this would be right to the city a few years ago which i was a part of and you know a lot of it was you know there were people from the community but it was really brought up together by self-identifying activists um, who then did mobilisation events. A good example would be around Queen's Wharf, where we had, if you guys remember, that big, in Queen's Park, like that big event to try to bring awareness to the issue. So that's more... Occupy Wall Street, I think, was was another example that she made, which I think is really, really, like, really, Mm. really good, where it's like, well, that was an important moment, and, like, it's... Mobilizing in and of itself and this sort of self-selected thing isn't in and of itself bad. It's just limited. She it, says things it can't she do. She absolutely says it's like an improvement on advocacy. But the issue is then she talks about organizing, which is where it's about mass. It's about bringing in a mass majority of people in a in a structure. She doesn't necessarily mean workplaces because she also talks about churches and the civil rights movement. But basically, having a mass majority within a structure on board with a thing and it's high risk at high reward and it's very deep organizing so it's really these meaningful one-on-one connections with the majority of people in this structure they all have to buy in and it's maximum and that has maximum power because it's not only just within that structure like you know it's not just within the workplace it's in their communities as well yeah it was um and sort of interested in winning you know in the sense that like that, uh, it's so interested uh, in winning. It's yeah, such yeah. a it's such a breath of fresh air to read something from the left, which is only interested in winning. Well, and, and that breath of fresh air as well, extension, Danklin, like a lot of that. Um, uh, this sort, there's a malaise around the left at the moment around like you know I think she talks about this in a few of her talks. Like people are very apathetic. They don't really want to get involved. Actually, the vast majority, of, you know, to put it in an Australian context, are conservative or. Or, you know, actually don't, like, the problem is that they don't actually like trade unions. And she's like, well, that's bullshit. It just means that we're failing. Yeah. Like, that organisers are failing and we're not doing the right things. Because actually, people's lives are really tough. And they are really angry about the circumstances in which they find themselves. Yeah. And, you know, that their wage is really low. They can't afford housing. There's yeah. no public parks it's, in exactly. the area. Exactly. It's like, well, look, there's, there's serious social failings and people are experiencing that in their lives. The only the only way to, to win a difference is through some sort of collective organisation, whether that be through a union or through a park party or through you know whatever sort of organization a church the only way to do that is is by working together of course this stuff works like of course it works yeah there was two tensions that i thought it would be useful teasing out the first one was um that 
you know, there was moments throughout the book, and I think was it Ellen you brought up the Communist Party, um, Callum brought up the Communist Party, uh, and that um, sort of alluded to the fact that the Communist Party had been driven out of the trade union movement in the 50s during the McCarthy period, which was this sort of brutal um, turn in the labour movement in the US towards a much more conservative trade union movement that sort of Jane describes now. And her efforts to uh, overturn this conservative form of organising often come down to her individual efforts or coming out of a particular union shop and things like that, or even her concepts around whole worker organising and sort of wondering what, like how you would translate this worker power in a particular trade union into social power and broader society that happened, you know, briefly via the Chicago Teachers Union, which was amazing. When, um, and I was actually in Chicago when um, that uh, the leader of the Chicago Teachers Union was about to run um, for the Lord Mayorship and you saw organising on the ground. And when I was there just as she was diagnosed with brain cancer, um, and was replaced with, um, I forgot his name, but the alternative Chicago Teachers Union political leader. And his signs were everywhere. Um, but there was a lot of, it felt like there was a lot of mourning in the city about her not being able to run. But what's in absence of all of that is a political party. Like that, she never mentioned, I never found her, maybe she does, but I never found in the two books that I've, like sections of the books that I've read, specifically the need for a political party that sort of coheres that tendency around organising in politics and lets it spread throughout um the trade union movement, then, it, but also translating the power of the trade union movement, collectivizing it and wielding it in society. And that brings me to the second sort of tension, and I think one for us, which is that she's very explicit at moments throughout the book that power comes from workers organizing and, um, and, and that it's not... Because we've always attempted to, like one of our, I think, it's not necessarily like an irresolvable tension, but we've always attempted in reverse. Like our analysis has been that social movements and trade unions are sclerotic at the moment and that we need to be able to build a political movement that can intervene in politics and wield power that way because that's where the political establishment is weakest currently. Like it's clear that they're weakest in the political sphere and so intervening in that and making victories and building power that way via political education, building our movement is useful. But throughout her book, she does a very good job as a sort of an anatomy of power and where power comes from and it's workers' ability to withdraw their labour and then you and leverage that power by joining with other um, organisations. Um, but what I found really interesting combining those two tensions was in the one hand, that's true. But on the other, it was clear that her inability to overturn the malaise in the trade union movement and win power from that new political tendency was precisely the lack of a big political party like the Communist Party in the 1950s that was capable of intervening in multi-trade unions at a time and cohering and providing an organisational framework by which to push that form of organising. And I found it really interesting. It was like starting to think about a chicken and the egg thing there well, around... Because it really is. Where she's like, cause the whole thing with whole worker organising is that, look, it's actually not just in the sphere of work that workers yes. exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it's, tr- it's true. But like, you, you also need to realise that for them to do things at work, they need... They, they need to have certain other sort of conditions fulfilled in their in their community um, yes. and the support of their community to do to to take on radical action at work. Exactly, Declan, and and I think 
that's precisely right in the sense that it built momentum. Like you always read her descriptions were it started with a victory just winning a contract. And often out of the victory of winning that contract, they they built enough comp- themselves as the working class, as a self-conscious working class um, that formed via struggle to then wield power in the community and society. She only cares about winning. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> For a reason. Builds, but winning builds an identity as well as a confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what winning does to be like, oh shit, who was it who won? Oh, it was me. As I a can do it again. Of, it was me <laughs> as a member of the working class, like who won with my community. Yeah. Oh, I, I, we want to repeat that and we want to repeat that in spheres outside of the realm of work as well. I think that that repeating is key here and it's kind of like um, the crossing over of the, the work they were doing in mobilising and organising in that she often speaks of the only way they were having, the only the only cause that they were having success by when they were going into different workplaces and actually being trusted when they're saying, we want to win this contract, this contract is possible, is because they'd done it before. Yes. Every other experience that worker had had with the union to that point was one of disinterest, one of defeat, and one of just like a total and complete lack of ambition and not not just ambition because you know ambition speaks to the fact that you know they'd want more than what's reasonable what they wanted was you know a living wage and you know in this instance in healthcare um you know nurse to patient ratios that weren't going to lead to a decline and like you know a decline in healthcare and Mm. actually like people dying when they go to the hospital instead of getting better because there was just not enough nurses to take care of them or, you know, nurses are breaking their backs because they're taking care of too many patients kind of thing. Like, it wasn't ambitious things they were asking for and the fact that, you know, going into these new hospitals and, yeah, most people being like, unions, no, you can't help us. They need – it was the fact that they had won and often those initial wins came from not just within the workplace but, you know, electing people to the county boards and doing – doing essentially doing the work of acting as a political party in really key moments, in really adverse conditions to win things that no one thought were possible. Yeah, and what I thought was really different about, like, the the US setting to the Australian setting here is, like – Union branches, union locals can operate with a lo- much more autonomy. It's a much, remarkable, much more it? autonomy, much yeah. much more autonomy, and that's that's simply not true in Australia. Like I like I I find it really hard to like because you know I read this as I started a job in the union and I was like I was so excited you know like oh. I'm just gonna go and like. Find I'm gonna a place. be the next Jane. I'm gonna do it. Like we're gonna win. Like, but not even because like uh, I was like, oh, I'm particularly talented. It was just like, oh, she's just really laid it out in this really relatively yeah, simple yeah, way. Yeah. Like, I think this is very repeatable. Um, and you know, like I think one of the secretaries at the union might have read one of her books relatively recently, and I was like, here we go. Like, bing, bang, boom. Like, we're we're on the path to victory here. Um, but that the, the, a union can't operate with that level of autonomy because of their because of their relationship to the Labor Party is is a really important part of it. What's interesting is that like. That's kind of the space that we're in now. Like you think back to the last federal election when one of the like most uh, like successful talking points we had in going out and like, um, you know, mobilizing and organizing, chatting to real people about their everyday concerns was just, you know, spouting dental into Medicare, dental into Medicare. Like the fact that the party at a higher level was not talking about that at all didn't make any difference because that sphere of politics is actually so far removed from most people's lives that we actually do have like a little bit of autonomy within a political party moment here, which is kind of leading to our success. And, And that's a really good point, Eleanor in the sense that our success has come as a result of essentially being in a very fragmented organ like quite fragmented organization uh and uh separate um 
And Declan, I was going to say the only autonomy that's like the only autonomy that sort of exists appear. I've in my experience in the trade union movement is at a state by state level. You mm. know, like each state trade union body, but they're all crippled by their loyalty to the Labour Party. Yeah, well, I think like I think the Labour Party is much stronger at a state level. Like, well, I, don't know, I think the union movement is stronger at a state level. I think there's a like there's a really complicated like tension here. But the the natural party of government at the is at the state level in Australia, often the Labour Party. I think that's true of of most states since since at least the 90s. And so I think that, yeah, I think that... that, that trade unions don't want to strike against Labour governments. Trade unions don't want to strike against Labour governments. Well, they don't want to strike at all. Strike yeah, 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 well, also, yeah like, that's right, but particularly against <laughs> Labour governments. But also, like, and, 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 and this, this is the point that, that Jane really makes, is, like, it, it wouldn't matter if Australian unions did want to strike. They're sure as shit not interested in winning 100% union, like, like membership to go on strike. And that exactly, and what was one of the things that really I think this ran its home because one of the sort of like um, asinine things that often is said in the left is like we need a general strike or like why don't we strike? I think she does a very good job of demonstrating the fucking shit metric shit tons amount of work you have to do before you get to that position. Not and you have to have the willingness that it's even considered as a tactic, which it's not. And that would really came out in the during the Queensland state election when they froze teachers and nurses' wages. And the, basically the QTU and the QNU, Queensland Teachers Union, Queensland Nurses Union, rolled over in a fucking second, even though there was a lot of teachers who were very upset about the wage freeze. There's always, there's always a few workers, like, yeah, like and I noticed this in the public service, there's always a few workers who are like, well, why don't we go on strike? But, like, the... The union bureaucracy like seems to recognise that what that means is concentrating all of its resources as 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 though through like a magnifying glass for six to twelve months to even a couple of years, and they're not willing to do that because it means that the rest of the other places where they've got membership all turn around and say, well, where were you for the last two years? They've got no membership there, and their overall mem- union density drops, and therefore their like budgets drop well and crucially they give up power because you know the role of trade unions now is to wield power in the labor party so thus total raw membership matters to them more because it gets them votes on state labor state conference floors they don't they couldn't uh, that union leadership doesn't i don't think a lot of it attached to labor i couldn't give a fucking shit whether or not they'd win a strike but if they can get an extra seat pre-selected in a, a federal election then that's you know that's sweet um, which, you know, is a bit depressing. I feel like now might be a good moment to kind of circle back on the structural test in relation to strikes in, like, what's the point of it, really? Because she speaks quite a lot about the fact that, you know, it's not enough just to believe that strikes are still a meaningful tactic, but you have to be prepared to put in the work to get to a certain kind of level of density yeah. and buy-in such that the strike will actually be successful. So what yeah, she Yeah, which is why, like, a general strike is, like... Like you know, like like her steps towards a, a single strike, strike, like a single strike in like like a single strike of like what a thousand workers in one in one organization is like like two or three years worth of work where you get every single person and every single like unit to map out everybody else in that unit, like and write it down on a list and then like keep a like a, a visible check like track record of everyone who's participated in X action, X action two, X action three. X action four, Y action, Y action one, etc., and like and do that for for such a long time until you can say, okay, we have got every single person in this whole institution has done this like for for lower stakes different things this many times. We can actually threaten a strike now mm. because mm. we know that it's a credible threat and because the boss knows that it's a credible threat, yeah. as opposed to just saying, 
why don't we just do a general strike? Well, this is not a credible threat. We don't have near near the, the level of worker organisation or social organisation to pull off even a minor strike, let and, alone a major one. And also, the even the decision to go on a strike being one that has to be made yes. with Absolutely. Like, complete worker buy-in. That's not something that some kind of decision-making council or like senior group of organisers can then try and convince of them. She speaks like quite often of the lengths that she went to to host, you know, meetings with dozens to hundreds of workers, then going around to key workers' leaders' house to explain the situation. In some instances to say, actually, we need, we can't have a strike now. We don't have the strength to, to, to do a strike. It wouldn't go anywhere. The threat is not credible. But I think, um, I think she also is really strong about like letting the workers decide, like this make that decision as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that was yeah, Eleanor's point being that that like their decision, but precisely that, like actively enthusiastically their decision. Yeah, and she she frames herself again and again as being like, look, I'd like I, I'm there as an advice giver, like I'm there to tell workers like whether they're strong enough to strike, whether they're not strong enough to strike, based on what I think. But it's up to them to make that call. They like they they can use me as a sounding board. Mm. She d- has a really good description um, of how. So she's currently views the union uh, structure at the moment. So it's between, imagine a triangle. On one corner of the triangle, you've got unions. The other corner, you've got bosses. And the other corner, you've got workers. So in this view, the union sees themselves as sort of an intermediary between the workers and the bosses. So, you know, the workers come to the union. This is what we want. Union goes to the boss and says, this is what your workers want. They negotiate it out on behalf of the workers. But Jane McAlevey's model of it is there's only two points. You've got the workers and you've got the bosses. The union is not really even in the picture except to do what you just said, Eleanor, to provide like, you know, this is, on our opinion, this is whether or not you can, you know, it's the, the fight is between the workers and the bosses and the workers are the ones who have to have the agency and the enthusiasm to do it and the union is just there to provide resources and like advice like a a catalyst on an abstract level and and from the very beginning sometimes it's just about you know doing the work to can like allow you know people within an organization to even not only believe that something better is possible for them but that also they're worth that that's something that's worth fighting for kind Mm. of thing and and also convincing them that it's sort of like you know, what do you have to lose? You know, your job, but also <laughs> it's like, it's a kind of this ironic thing where it's like, if you don't do anything, it's only going to get worse. That's only what's been happening. She calls here. it, um, she calls it putting the hard, um, framing the hard choice. Framing the hard choice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which we is should... exactly what we're doing quite often at the door as well. Sometimes when you, you, you know, you're not sitting there trying to get to the point where you can get someone to agree, agree with you empathetic, like, on every single little like, but you find a common material yeah, interest. Yeah, com- a common material interest, and just framing the fact that like, it's this, this or that. Realistically, these are your two options. Why not? You know, go yeah. for gold. Try yeah. something yeah, yeah. different. No, no, just as, being like, well, as is one of our favorite. And lines. that's and that's um, volunteer recruitment as well. Often, like volunteer recruitment is often around finding like some form of common interest, and like not recognizing that you don't necessarily have to agree on everything. Uh, as like a way of bringing people together. I was going to say we've been running for well over an hour now, and it's probably time to wrap up. Did people want to finish with fi- like finishing thoughts? Did we want to talk about structural tests a bit more in terms of how we use them? Where it gets once you get to like an hour twenty, it gets 
it gets but unlikely for it people, gets to keep people will actually keep listening or even press play. <laughs> I think if, like just on that, like one final thought that I've had and and this is like criticism that we get from the outside in and it's also like criticism that I've all like this attention or kind of contradiction that as an organizer I've even sat with within a campaign you know where you set these goals it's like all right 2000 yard signs 600 volunteers on election day and there has been so many times where in that space I've sat there and thought like that just seems like too many like why do we keep setting these like such ambitious and and people often call them crazy and I like to think of them as ambitious um and it's not because you know we're just you know trying to use people and create something bigger and bigger and bigger so that like we have this big fancy um you know, project where we're like, we, um, we're the most successful because we're getting the most people out. But it, it's, it's the importance of actually believing that it's possible to, to reach a target like that. And just the importance of making sure that every time you do it, you do it more. So each campaign needs to hit these targets, however arbitrary they seem, whether you actually think that getting 1500 yard signs up or 1700 yard signs up is going to, you know, produce a meaningful impact on the overall swing that you're getting. But the message that it's sending to your volunteer base in terms of saying, we actually are capable of expanding to this extent. It's something far more subliminal and symbolic that that's actually doing in terms of making people believe and feel the value and, and, and their own power as either workers or everyday people engaged in an electoral project. So yeah, they're not arbitrary. They're not meaningless. Yes, they can sometimes seem superficial and falling more onto the mobilizing rather than the organizing, but actually they're a very necessary part of winning and change mm. in general. Mm. And I think a lot of that is that that we're not operating on the field of like we're not we're not aiming for a strike at the end. Like what what we're doing is a hegemonic project and what we're testing at any given time is like well what percentage of people in in this electorate are w- willing to demonstrate physically their allegiance to this politics like whether that's you know with the yard sign or with by standing out on election day and being seen in a green shirt while their neighbors come by or or things of this nature. So it's it's we're testing our level of hegemonic kind of like entrance into into the structure that is a geographic area. Come, no, that all sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I, I think um, it's pretty much all been said. I think what was really encouraging um, about that, in reference to the stuff that we're doing here, is also just in terms of long term capacity building and political education uh, that. Uh, and a recognition that a movement and a political project is built off the back of wins that build confidence in the tactics that we're using. What's very encouraging is we have one, uh, and that every a couple of times, now. yeah, yeah, quite a few times, <laughs> um, and that every time, sort of a, built upon every victory, is a broader and broader layer of people who are politically educated, not just in our politics, like our understanding of um, society and power, and you know. Um, uh, how we plan to change society, improve people's lives, but also politically educated in how we organise, how we make it so that we can go and chat, ideally, to 2,000 people in a weekend, like have one, 2,000 one-on-one conversations in a weekend, or we can put up 2,000 yard signs. And that that is built... Off, that is um, built off the back of a coherent strategy, a coherent politics, uh, and an ability, um, I suppose, an ability uh, to articu- articulate that 
and bring more people into the project. And what's in, what reading that, notwithstanding the tensions I think that we still have to grapple with around our lack of connection to an organised working class or even in a strategy to achieve that, which I think is something that we have to continue to think about, um, and maybe it is that the Queensland Greens or the Greens end up becoming um, a political meeting space for dissidents within the trade union movement and a space to organise therein and then project back out into the trade union movement, which I think would be an interesting space. Notwithstanding that, we're doing a remarkable amount of good work in terms of building that um, given the state of progressive politics at the moment. And for me, that notwithstanding all of those tensions and questions that I think these books raised um, for me, uh, that in itself is extremely encouraging um, and uh, bodes well for, I think, where our movement is going. Congratulations, us, as yeah. always. <laughs> That's right. There's two, if there's two rules of um, Floodcast, one, lol the Labour Party, two, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.